0: a great message in life from the, all the sages is that you jump off a cliff and you don't land on rock, you land on a feather bed. The world exists not to beat you down, but to lift you up.
1: Welcome to Naturally Well, a podcast to help you live a healthier and happier life with a Nordic twist. I'm your host, Kate Turner, registered dietitian, personal trainer, Nordic Naturals nutrition specialist, and owner of Live Well with Kate. Today's guest is Wade Davis, and this episode is all about trying to find your life's purpose, being the architect of your own life, and how people can apply it to their own lives. Wade, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so happy to have you on here. Um, I was just I was just telling you, I was listening to another podcast you were on, and I was like, I have to get him on ours. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for coming on.
0: I'm thrilled to be here, Kate, with you.
1: I'd love for you just to tell our listeners a little bit more about your journey to finding a passion and career in anthropology and what really drives you there.
0: Well, I'd be happy to, especially, you know, young people are always kind of sold, Kate, a bill of goods, saying that life is linear, that if you go from A to B, if you skip C and D, you'll never get to the rest of the alphabet. but. Anyone who's lived a long and, and contented life knows that it was forged by moments of serendipity where you, as Joseph Campbell famously said, you come to a crossroads and you've got to somehow find a way to follow your inner compass, your heart, as you he used to say, and, and and not listen to the voices around you. Because one of the things I've certainly learned um, is that whenever one wants to make a change, even as trivial as cutting your hair. Uh, There's going to be someone who's irritated because, of course, they want to keep you as you are because that's how they know and like you, right? And all of my life, it's been like that. And, um, uh, you know, what's wrong with the Canadian university? Why do you have to go to Harvard? Oh, you're, you, you're supposed to be becoming you know, a lawyer. What's this, uh, you know, this anthropology thing? Oh, you know, wait, what's this botany thing? Wait, I mean, you're a good botanist. What's this voodoo thing? I mean, you're a voodooist. What's this, you know, activist? You know, and so on and so forth i you know i I think the key um to my uh background wasn't that I knew what I wanted to do, but in retrospect, I was kind of constitutionally incapable of compromising, even when I desperately as a young man wanted to compromise when all my friends were sort of falling away into medical school and law school and sort of secure and obvious career uh, trajectories and um I grew up in Canada um in Quebec, um, in a very simple middle-class family. Uh, my father had been broken in the war. His father had been broken in the First World War. My mother's uh, father had, had died when she was a little girl in the Spanish influenza of 1919. She found herself having married an RAF fighter pilot uh, who abandoned her, a single mom, uh, in the you know mid-40s. It wasn't easy for them. And they had settled into a very comfortable middle-class life in the 1950s. Exactly, and tragically, the kind of banal existence, as my generation saw it, which was so cruel, because we didn't appreciate what they had gone through. And yet we didn't want that life for ourselves. And, and a lot of us developed what Baudelaire called the great malady, horror of home. You know, we we wanted to get out of that uh, world that we saw to be problematic in so many ways, the treatment of women, um, of gay men and women, uh, of the environment, uh, uh, of the war in Vietnam, the civil rights, the list was endless. And I think many of us were propelled to go out into the world in in, in pursuit of a kind of more authentic life in a way. And I certainly discovered early on that the way for me to get out was to to both metaphorically and literally leap off cliffs, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, Terence McKenna, my old great friend, um, you know, the wit of the Irish, uh, Terence used to say, you know, the great message in life from the, all the sages is that, you you jump off a cliff and you don't land on rock. You land on a feather bed. The world exists not to beat you down, but to lift, lift you up. And, um, you know, I did that at every single step of my life. I mean, you know, when I, uh, I remember I went to Harvard, for example, I was a kid working in fire camps in British Columbia at 15 and our camps in the late sixties were overrun with American draft dodgers because it was the only work they could get. Um, and we are these obedient Canadian lads and they were, um, telling our bosses to piss off. And it was kind of irresistibly charismatic. And one of them had the Life magazine with the Harvard student strike on the cover. And I thought, well, that's got to be where you go to school to become cool like these guys. And then I managed to get into Harvard, but I didn't know where it was. Landed at Logan Airport as a 16 or 17-year-old kid. And I didn't know where the university was. And so I saw this um, black guy with a Harvard T-shirt on. I thought, he's got to know. He didn't know either. And I found myself dragging my trunk through the subway system because my family didn't have the money to take taxis. Um, And then I realized my mom had made a mistake and sent me down 10 days early and the dorms weren't open. So there I was, you know, I don't know, 16 or 17, a big steamer trunk, no money whatsoever because I was going to get the money to the local bank, which was closed, and uh, nowhere to stay. And so I dragged my trunk through Cambridge until I found a church knocked on the door, and a kindly pastor welcomed me in, and I stayed with him for a week. And I fell in love with America at that point, Um, but he was also a major war resistor. So I was radicalized overnight, spent my first year basically making trouble politically uh, against the war, and then the deadline for um, listing your major, academic major, was the next morning, and I hadn't given it a thought. And I happened by chance to have walked through the she bought a museum of ethnology that afternoon for the first time. And I literally walked out in the sunshine and I ran into an acquaintance and I said, Stuart, what what are you going to declare tomorrow? And he said, anthropology. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, you read about Indians. And like Forrest Gump, I said, that'll do. And that's how I became an anthropologist. And it gets even more. Then two and a half years after that, having only spent my time reading Ancient monographs and 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 accounts of distant cultures. I wanted to live with them, and I was in a cafe in Harvard Square with my roommate, also an anthropologist. And by complete fluke, there was a National Geographic map of the world on the wall right beside us. And David looks at the map, and he looks at me. He looks at the map. He suddenly points to the High Arctic in Canada. Uh, Well, I had to go somewhere, and literally, my left arm lifted Kate. Uh, and it landed in the Northwest Amazon of Colombia. Now, if it had hit, I always joked that if it had hit Italy, I might have become a Renaissance scholar. But, having decided to go to the Amazon, there was just one man to see, the legendary botanical explorer, Richard Evan Schultes, who, of course, would become my mentor. He was the man who sparked the psychedelic era with his discovery of the magic mushrooms in Mexico in nineteen thirty eight. Uh, and then he disappeared in the Amazon for 12 uninterrupted years in the 1940s and early 1950s. And, he, you know, Mounds had been named for him. He was a legend. Prince Philip had called him the father of the Amazon. And I I don't know how I had the nerve to do this, but I just knocked on the door of his office in the sort of upper eerie of the Botanical Museum. And I got in and I just blurted out, uh, mm. I'm from British Columbia. I've saved up money in the logging camp, and I want to go to the Amazon and collect plants like you did. Well, Heath was such an Anglophile that one of his colleagues once said of him, the only way for Schultes to go native would be to go to London. And he thought I was referring to his Columbia, beloved Columbia. And um, he didn't ask me for my credentials or what courses I had taken, or let alone who my father was. He just looked across a mound of plant specimens, peering through his antiquated bifocals. Uh, and said very simply, "Well, son, when do you want to go?" And that was it. Two weeks later, I was in Colombia.
1: Oh my God. See the story. I see. This is like my favorite question that we ask everyone—the first one because there's always such a good story, and I do find it helps people. You know, we will we will get into it, like kind of like you know, talking about discovering your purpose and things like that, but. It's amazing to me how a lot of the times things do kind of fall in your lap, and it's just if we're paying I, I think, attention yeah, think, to it.
0: Well, I think you know, you know, and then they, then you, Kate, you can look back and sort of see patterns that you hadn't mm-hmm. uh, in any way um, noticed at the time. But for example, I mentioned that I I grew up in Quebec, but I grew up in Quebec at a time when the French and English did not talk to each other. It was really like two worlds, two solitudes, as we said. And I lived in a a uh, a. Uh, uh, English suburb that was kind of um like a carbuncle on top of an old francophone village that dated to the um eighteenth, if not the seventeenth century. And there was literally a boulevard, Cartier Boulevard, that divided the English community from the French. And and people didn't in a way I mean, literally people would cross that boulevard. Yeah. Metaphorically, you didn't cross that foot And I, as a little boy, my mom would send me to a corner store Uh, to get milk or cigarettes or bread that was run by a wonderful elderly francophone couple. And even at the age of five, I remember sitting on their stoop and peering across that wide, um, beautiful boulevard and thinking, wow, on the other side, there's a different language, a different religion, a different way of life. Why can't I cross this road? And of course, the prohibition wasn't from my parents, who were beloved in the village, very kind people, but it was a prohibition from my society, right? And in a way, I've been crossing that road ever since. Um, And I also really benefited from a wonderful and very ambitious mother ambitious because I think she had lost her father. And my own father was not ambitious. And she put a lot of her kind of hopes in life into. Me in particular, uh, emphasizing education. I mean, my parents were incredible. I mean, they they didn't spend half of their salaries; they spent half of their savings to allow me to go to college at at, um, at Harvard, uh, knowing full well that every day I was there widened the social chasm and educational chasm between us. What a generous thing, eh? And so generous. And my there there was a there was a, a teacher who who proposed to take a group of schoolboys, to Columbia, of all places, in the summer of 1968. And my mom worked all year as a secretary in an elementary school to save enough money to allow me to join that group. And, you know, in 1968, most Canadians and Americans, the vast majority, had never been in an airplane. And if they had been, they might have flown off to London or Paris. Columbia, in 1968, was a very long way away. Um, um, and when we, I was very fortunate that I was billeted that summer with a modest family in the mountains, as opposed to the other kids who were with quite wealthy families and spent a sort of sweltering season in the streets of Cali. And many of the older Canadian lads who were all 16 and 17, I was only 14. And they all succumbed to what the Colombians call mamitis, which is homesickness. And I, by contrast, felt like I I'd, I'd finally found home. You know, there was something in that incredible intensity of Latin life, the, the understanding and passion and the acceptance of the frailty of the human spirit. You know, the fact that you could literally dance with your new girlfriend and then dance with her mother, you know, there, there was just something so beautiful about it. And I, I just became enchanted. And it's, it's not a, a, an accident that, you know, 45 years later, I find myself an honorary Colombian citizen. Um, but those those two kind of moments, I think, really set me off on this path of of, of becoming a true um, student of culture.
1: A lot of people do struggle with, which I think, like we all struggle with, probably our whole life. But like some, maybe more than others, of struggling with like what their purpose is in life, or something that I want to start talking about with it that you speak a lot about is being the architect of your own life. So I would love if you could put in your own words, like what that means and what are some strategies for all of us to start doing to become the architect of our own lives and hopefully align with our purpose?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it it is sort of the central challenge of life. You know, when you think of people, I'm now almost 70. And when I look around People my age, it, it's pretty obvious that bitterness comes to those in old age who look back on a life of decisions imposed upon them, you know, by the society, by their own dark angels, by their families, or whatever. Um, and cont- those who are content are those who can look back on a long life. And when I say be the architect of your own life, I don't mean that every decision you've made necessarily has been or should be or the the right one, whatever that means. But if you own those decisions, that's just fine because then they were, the, by definition, in a way, the right one because they led to everything else that unfolds in their wake. You know, I think that um, one of the things that I certainly struggled with coming from a kind of sort of standard bourgeois background was that kind of idea that we all had that creativity happened to somebody else. You know, how many times in school would you hear oh Susan's creative what an artist she is or or Johnny is so creative what a guitar player whatever well creativity doesn't exist in the abstract you know creativity is not the uh the motivation for action um it's a consequence of action you can only create by doing and 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 once you realize that then you just have to start jumping off the cliff and doing things it's like Jim Whittaker The wonderful climber, a great man, good friend of mine, the first American on top of ever, has said that if you don't live on the edge when you're young, you're taking up too much space. Um, And, um, you you know, you have to put yourself in the way of opportunities, um, not as a schemer, but simply that to be exposed to obligations that you must meet when failure is not an option and you suddenly find yourself achieving things that might have been beyond your imaginings a few months before. Um, you know, a, a vocation is not something you try on like a hat, this old idea like there's a smorgasbord of careers, you know, shall I be a fireman, a lawyer, a doctor, or what? You know, no, it's a vocation is something that you it grows around you choice by choice, you know, decision by decision. And the ultimate goal is to make life itself your vocation so that the job you have at any one point in time, whatever that is, becomes just a lens through which you look out onto your experience, um, recognizing that nothing is beneath you unless you make it so, and nothing is a waste of time unless you define it as that. Um, and, and and above all, I say to young people, um, understand it. To do what you're trying to do, which is to generate something that's never existed before, which is by definition, you know, a full and unique human life. It takes time, um, and, and you have to be patient and you have to, you know, view despair, frankly, as an indulgence, um, pessimism, um, um, you know, an insult to the imagination, orthodoxy, something to be avoided, um, do what needs to be done and only then ask whether it was possible or permissible. I mean, at every single step of my life, I've been wildly indecisive, uh, I have no idea what I wanted to do or why I should do it. But what saved me in a way was the fact that for some crazy reason, I was incapable of compromising, uh even when I desperately wanted to. I mean, I often say, um, Kate, to young people, a funny story. You know, when I uh, graduated at 23 having, from Harvard, having spent two years in the Amazon. I was a very precocious young botanical explorer with a great career ahead of me. Um, uh, but I wasn't sure about that. And so I came back and I, I took a job at the lowest rung of a very tough logging camp here in the northwest coast in Haida Gwaii. I'm sure my father was turning over um you know I mean after all that he had invested in the education but that time I spent in that logging camp for a year was one of the best things I've ever 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 done um and um uh, certainly one of the most e- educational things I've ever done but at the end of that I was 23 and confused and I did what many young people do you apply to further education and I applied to law school and graduate school in botany as if they were the same thing. And, and I got into both, and I was saved by a fairy godmother. My, my one beloved sister, Karen, uh, was working in a posh law firm at that time. She was articling as a lawyer. And I went to pick her up one afternoon, and um, this wonderful old lady behind the counter, or the receptionist, took one look at me, and she said, Are you, are you Karen's brother, Wade? I said, Yes, ma'am. Uh, you just came back from the Amazon. Mm-hmm. You eat all these weird plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, y- you follow me. And she dragged me by the hand through the law library where she had set up a, a, a ladder that lifted me up to come face to face with an old lithograph of a barrister, an English barrister or a solicitor, rather. I always get those mixed up from the 18th century, yeah. you know, fat belly, wig, hook nose looking Awful, and, as I'm staring at this figure, she yells up from below, "Is that you? And I took one look and I said, "No. I came down off the ladder, she dragged me by the hand back to the front desk, I called the law school, retracted my app successful application, and went off to study botany again. You know I mean so I mean these are these moments, so what I say to young people, you know you've got to be patient. Uh, and give your destiny time to find you. You know, I I was uh, um, thirty two. You know, when I when I was doing the voodoo research, uh, and because the financial backer had a stroke and the scholarly inspiration for the project died in routine heart surgery, all within twenty four hours, I went from being flushed with support to having none, and I walked off the street to a literary agent in London and came out with a book contract. And then I had to write a book and I wrote two chapters at the end of my research that I thought was the best thing since the Bible. The publisher sent it back and told me to do it again. Um, And so I kind of disappeared to a farm. I had malaria and hepatitis and a dear friend of mine put me up on her farm and I taught myself to write. I had no choice and um, I had a great story to tell. I just had to figure out how to tell it. So I turned to the masters and Hemingway for dialogue and Isaac Dennison for evoking landscape and Lawrence Durrell for the mystery of an exotic locale. You know, there was dozens of these books that were my favorite books. And I didn't obviously plagiarize and I didn't copy. I didn't even mimic, but I would just pick them up when I was stuck. And and by osmosis almost, I, I, I would learn how the masters had done it. Um, and so I wrote The Surf from the Rainbow and it was edited in a day. Um, And it came out um, and sold half a million copies. So suddenly I was a writer. But, you know, I was, you know, 33, 34 at that point. And the previous 10 years had been, um, you know, wonderful in terms of what I had done, traveling all around the world, but not effortless in terms of the stress that I felt about this sort of uncertainty as to when my destiny would, in fact, find me. And it did. But it only did because I had had inadvertently, really, um, the patience to wait for it.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, so many things are, while you're telling that story, so many things are popping in my head of, you know, first going back to you saying, you know, you just have to do, right? Like you, in a way, which we say, like, you almost have to try a lot of things to see what aligns with your purpose or what makes you feel good and, Doing things, but then you get to these roadblocks like you had, where I'm sure so many people have of, okay, I'm going to apply to law school, which I'm curious, wait, if that was like a lot of it, like the societal pressure of just like, oh, well, that's like a safe job. Or am I going to, you know, follow probably more of a like a passion and go to graduate school for botany? And then, right, like you chose the more of the passion path, which luckily someone helped guide you, which we don't always get. And then you had the patience. And to me, those are like the three things that I think all everyone can identify with. But the patience piece at the end, it's like that really is. And it's not to say like be patient. (sighs) and something's just going to fall in your lap constantly. Like you said you have to like do that first part of doing and experiencing things to find what aligns with you. And sometimes that's really hard for people, especially like, you know, I think about you know, the parent that has young kids or older kids, right? And they're they feel like they don't have time to do anything or to explore any other opportunities. But you really have to try and make that time, even if it's just taking like a, a course here and there um, or something that you found you were passionate about a long time ago, maybe taking it up again, like painting or cooking. Yeah, I'm I mean, I think, like
0: I, think I think, you know, the, 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 w- 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 there are all these messages people get, you know, hum, you know, um, you know, I can't do that. I wasn't trained in it. I can't do that mm-hmm. because I didn't go to art school. And of course that's ridiculous. I mean, if you want to be a photographer, take pictures, you know, if you want to write, write. Um, and, and, you know, we all have, you know, we, you know, for example, that law school botany thing for me wasn't quite so black and white. It wasn't like just sort of looking for an easy thing. You know, I've been involved in the, uh, the timber industry. I saw the corruption. I had great passion for the environment. I, I, I had always been tempted by a political career, or law school. You know, that was calling me in that direction, right? Um, you know, during when I was in a logging camp, for example, I applied to be a Rhodes Scholar and was accepted and then denied um, by a technicality. I was two days too old or something like that. But I was already kind of moving, you know, there was that possibility. Yeah. And, and uh, having done so much botanical exploration, I was also sort of sensing that I really wasn't a passionate, you know, plant taxonomist you know i was interested in the use of plants by people i was certainly interested more in culture than in botany so i I, you know i even went to graduate school in botany quite certain that i would never seek an academic career as a botanist but i knew that something would happen there as and indeed it did so these things are never cut and dry but but i think i you know I, i i think you you know especially for young people you know young people can look up at someone they admire um and and say well how can i ever achieve what he or she has done well give yourself time i mean you know when i was 22 i was looking up at my heroes gary snyder and uh you know and and others um david brower Uh, And thinking, you know, how the Peter Matthews and the writer—I mean, how could I ever do that? Well, the answer is they were fifty years older than me, and I'm, you know, fifty years older than most young students that I teach at university. So, so you know, like, you've got life's a long race, and uh, you know, a kid growing up now has a very good chance of living well into their nineties. So, you know, you you cut out if you cut out the years that um, you spend as a child or or you know or 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 jailed in high school, um you're kind of beginning your life at twenty in a way, so you've got seventy years and you're only getting going right and there and there's so much pressure on young people um you know it's too late, it's never too late, but one what one does have to be cautious about is that all of these things from marriage to a vocation a career can often be easier to get into than get out of, you know, so it's important to to not feel that pressure and to really find it's not easy, but to find a way to try to listen to your own heart and, and, and not be too tough on oneself if you do make some mistakes. But um, um, if you keep that focus on your inner compass, um, all will be well. One thing we do know, Kate, is that if you compromise and you go into a field of work that doesn't turn you on, you will not be good at it. And we equally know that if you follow your passion, whatever that passion is making making furniture um you know being a bricklayer whatever it is if you're passionate about it you'll be excellent at it and so passion is not just an emotional uh force of stability and calm and contentment uh it also is um practical um a fuel uh for the success of a career
1: yeah and i think it's important to know too it's like we're always fine tuning and honing our purpose. Like I was, you know, I was fortunate and it's funny, you know, just the stories that come about, but I was fortunate. The only reason why I got into nutrition was my high school guidance counselor. I was thinking of actually taking a gap year between high school and college um, because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did know that I wanted to know what I wanted to do going into college. That's like, that was the funny thing. But Um, she had asked me, you know, when you go to a magazine stand, right? Like you're at the airport or you're at the train station and you go to a magazine stand, what type of magazine do you gravitate towards? I said, oh, like usually it's anything around health and wellness. She's like, okay, when you open that magazine, when you see the table of contents, what articles do you go to immediately? Like what's your first ones I was like you know what always the nutrition ones and then kind of like you Wait, then when you were like reflecting back and you think about like all these other connections like my mom was sick when I was young but my a lot of my memories of her was like she was like you know juicing when nobody was juicing and always making healthy food and I always had this you know connection with her of like she was so healthy and um just this connection with food too and then, you know, the guidance counselor asked, like, well, would you want to do nutrition as a career? Honestly, I didn't even know you could. Like, I hadn't even heard of a dietitian. And that was what at least got me in to the field. But, like, even now, I'm still fine-tuning and honing in on my purpose within the field, you know? So even it's like, even when you feel like you've figured it out, or you right? You figured out your your purpose in life or your passion, and you still have to be patient with it. Or at least that's what I found. Like I still have to be patient with you know because I'll go through ups and downs of like oh this is really driving me right now and fueling me, and then oh it's kind of burning me out right now. You know, I mean, I mean, well, I, to think, know, I think I, you know, changing a
0: bit. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, happily, you know what? One thing to to reflect on is is the pace of social change. In other words, what you're just talking about there, um, and incidentally, I love that image of your counselor telling you to look at magazines, and, and it, it, that's a metaphor what for what every young person should do. You know, we often say, you know, in the old days, a carpenter's son became a carpenter, and it wasn't just because there was a kind of a class or a, a, a kind of a, a structured expectation. It's that that little boy or girl or would have been boy back then, um, grew up around a carpenter and, 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 and no shit Sherlock of, you know, there's an element of, yeah, that's what, that's who I am. That's what, in a good sense. Um, and, and by the same token, I think that we forget how fast changes come. If you look back to the life of say my grandfather, your great grandfather and look at the values that they had about the environment, about women, let alone homosexuality, immigrants, whatever. Not only would you not agree with um, most of their convictions, you'd find them to be abhorrent today. And they weren't bad people. They were just products of their time. Uh, And we live in a world where women have gone from the kitchen to the boardroom, people of color from the woodshed to the White House, gay men and women from the closet to the altar. I mean, what an extraordinary thing. And, And you know, when I was a kid, just getting people to stop throwing garbage out of a car window was an environmental victory. No one spoke about biodiversity in the biosphere. No one had a concept of Gaia. No one even saw the Earth as being a single interactive uh, web of life. That was sort of a vision brought home to us n- in 1968 by Apollo, right, from from space. And, and so, you know, w- 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 for all our concerns, there have been tremendous strides, right? But those strides, you know, came about because of a set of ideas that really came from anthropology. The idea that you know the you know that the that the world that you're born in doesn't exist in some absolute sense, but as a model of reality. You know, the other peoples of the world aren't failed at be attempts at being you or failed attempts at being modern. You know, every culture is a kind of unique answer to a fundamental question: What does it mean to be human and alive? And 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 every culture has something to say, and each deserves to be heard. Well, these are wonderfully contemporary um, concepts that really inform our lives in a wonderful way. And by the same token, you know, my parents' generation uh, coming out of the agony of the bloodstained century of violence, the 20th century, you know, they kind of had patterns that they, that they fulfilled. I mean, by the time a woman was, or a man was 65, they considered their life almost over. And the only reason, incidentally, that we retire at 65 was because Bismarck, in the 19th century, to quell labor unrest in the Kaiser's Germany, uh, brought in the first incipient social security programs, but he wanted to pick an age where the state would never have to pay out any benefits, so he picked an age where, statistically, most people at that time would be dead. And that's why, to this day, we retire at 65, when, in fact... Longevity has increased to the point where your generation is almost certain to grow, uh, well into your nineties, right? And that gives humans, uh, certainly those who are in the affluent side of things, um, uh, another forty years of potential change and growth. So this, the idea that you're you're that you're too old, it's too late, you you know you 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 can't get out of the rut that you're in, really is not really true anymore. You know, it's it's a matter of taking hold of your agency and, and doing what you can, obviously within the constraints of your um, economic situation, which is, can be a, really a tough thing sometimes for people.
1: I know so many people that are like, you know, I don't really enjoy my job, but when I retire,
0: yeah, that's, that's when biggest... I'm going to
1: do my passion. That's yeah, what well, forget well, let's hope you make it, it to your retirement. Like, <laughs> Why can't we just be happy now? You're at least why or not? And like you said, right? People have financial constraints, and we have to be mindful of that. And that's life. But there are ways to do both, right? To also follow, like, to almost like do a little bit of both while you like we were talking about just doing things. It doesn't have to be like all in. You you quit your current job and start following this passion immediately. For some people, that works out well, but. For others, you can, you can kind of test the waters or like, I'm curious if you, what your thoughts are on that of like, you know, kind of testing your waters with the passion project or just different, um, whether it's passions or just trying new things
0: mm.
1: while you're, you know, maybe still in that more, um, secure or, for some people like un- unpleasant, um, Day to day tasks of their current job or
0: whatever it is. The the thing is, I've never really had a job, so I'm not really an expert on that. You know, and and I and I always encourage young people to be cautious about seeking jobs. The word "job" comes from the medieval French word gobert meaning to devour. Uh, My father had a job all his life. He called it the grind. And as a little boy, I used to think he'd go into work um, and come home a little shorter. And in in a way, he did. the word "work" uh, is is a much more wonderful um, origin. It means sort of to create and inspire from the um, uh, Anglo-Saxon roots. And so I always say to young people: never have a job, but work harder than anyone you've ever met, and and all will be be well. You know, I, I think that, that there's there's no sadder uh, kind of delusional deal with the devil than a young man or woman who says i'm going to do this crummy job for 30 years and then i'm going to retire and have fun if you take on the burden of such a a, 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 such an experience how do you expect it not to crush you in those 30 years leaving you a shadow of who you were when you made that deal and completely incapable of of um rekindling the creativity the energy the spark, the the, the optimism that you extinguished by that deal, uh, when you in fact do reach the so-called retirement age, uh, that, that's just not a good thing to do. It's sort of like, um, you know, it's like some time ago, Canada cut back on the pensions or proposed to of mail deliverers, you know, and you had all these sort of ex-hippies, um, who, you know, back in the time when everybody just wanted to check out and drop out had become postmen. And it was a good gig. You were outside all the time. Good exercise. Good pay. Good benefits. The best benefit, of which was to be able to retire very early with a great pension. And so all these characters who had made that choice um, were really indignant. And of course, at one level, it was unfair. But another, you had to say, man, if you if you made that kind of compromise when you were twenty five, you deserve a little bit of what you're getting. And and it happens. You know, I used to um, do a lot of lecturing on private jet trips uh, for the National Geographic that would go around the world. And these were extraordinarily expensive, high-end, um, you know, uh, vacations. Um, and invariably, the, the passengers were extraordinarily wealthy. And many of them had become wealthy by making widgets. You know, in other words, they had a factory that made hospital beds, or they had a, this that did that. And they were incredibly versed in widgets or hospital beds in in the case of one man I remembered. Um, but that's all they had done in their lives. So not only did they not have a whole lot to say or discuss except football and, you know, um, you know, golf. And and I I'm a fan of both sports, and I'm not knocking those sports. Um, but there was a wistfulness in their lives. You know, they would look at someone like myself or the other National Geographic uh, lecturers, and they wouldn't see Uh, men or women who were necessarily wealthy, but we had managed to make a good living. And we had, you know, accumulated a kind of a, a quiver of experiences, a kind of repertoire of anecdotes and stories. We'd lived a life that these captains of industry, you know, could hardly imagine. And not that we were better than them or vice versa, but I'm just saying that it was very poignant to see these individuals, many of them extraordinarily good people, uh, all of them phenomenally wealthy, um, but they were approaching in many cases the last decade, if not the last years of their lives, realizing that they had spent this one precious incarnation um making widgets. And 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 that was a tough thing for them to kind of come to terms with as we would shoot around the stratosphere, dropping into places like Angkor Wat and Iguazu and, and uh, Machu Picchu, etc., right? So I think, you know, you, 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 it, 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 it's really important to remember that you've got one go-around. You know, it's like, I always loved the response at Rongbuk Monastery of Zathar Rinpoche, when the British climbers in 1921 and22 and '24 and uh, first approached Everest, uh, attempting to get to the top of the world. And if you look at his spiritual Namtar, his sort of autobiography, which was more of a log of the events of the monastic community, uh, the arrival of these um, Sahibs and this huge entourage of hundreds of porters and equipment and all these Englishmen the uh, Tibetans at that time had never seen a European in that locale but nothing impressed them and and he just writes you know i was so saddened that they would um you know you know risk so much and suffer so much for such a pointless pursuit and of course reaching the top of the world mattered to the english uh, but from the tibetan point of view to deliberately uh, climb into a zone of oxygen deprivation where consciousness itself was obliterated uh, running the risk of snuffing out this one precious incarnation, your one chance to escape the cycle of death and rebirth, to escape samsara. for them, that was an absolute fool's errand. I mean, ironically, that to them was the definition of ignorance. Whereas the British might look at a retreatant monk who had devoted his entire life living in a single cell or reciting a single mantra, the British might see that as an expression of ignorance, but from the Tibetan point of view, it was a pure spiritual path. And as a Tibetan monk once told me, you know, we in Tibet don't believe that you went to the moon, but you did. You may not believe that we achieve enlightenment in one lifetime, but we do. And for the Tibetans, the serenity achieved by the um, by by the uh, by by the meditator and by the retreatant is in fact the proof of the efficacy of the science of the mind, which is a Tibetan Buddhist practice. So, you know, I, th- I think, I think, you know, one has to always be uh, conscious uh, of the uh, the, the, the um, fleeting nature of life. And if there's one lesson that comes to us from all of the wise men and women of history, it's that to satisfy one's needs through pure material acquisitions. Um, Is as pointless as the Buddha said of 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 trying to, you know, cast a net into a dry riverbed in pursuit of fish.
1: Yeah. No. And I mean, it's so it's so fascinating. And I think kind of one piece that I know, Wade, I've heard you talk about that we didn't really dive into. Not that we need to dive into it too much, but you did mention about how you know pessimism can be so limiting. How much of a role does being optimistic in this whole journey of, you know, trying to find your life's purpose, being the architect of your own life, how much of a role does being optimistic well, throughout it play?
0: Well, optimism doesn't mean being naive, and it, you know, it doesn't yeah, no. mean to, to ignore uh, evil. Um, but if one's alive, I, I don't know how you can not be optimistic to live on this earth. How can you not be optimistic? You know, we spend billions of dollars to send probes into space um, to try to find water on the moons of Jupiter or ice on Mars. And we spend billions of dollars compromising the fresh water that we have on Earth, which we know to be so precious in the universe. Imagine if one of these space probes brought back the sign of life, a single species alive and thriving on Mars. It would be rock the world, right? But we already have that. We have a blue planet with millions of species interacting every day that we, of course, treat with remarkable disregard. Um, You know, the opportunity to be born in this lifetime in a human body uh, anywhere in the world, but especially if you're living in a place like Norway or Canada, is to have won the absolute cosmic lottery of, of life. And, and one of the keys, I think, to maintaining one's optimism, if that's what the word is, is, is to recognize that there is good and evil in the universe. You know, my father, who was not a religious man, I don't think I once saw the inside of a church in his presence, but he did believe in good and evil. And, um, uh, and, and he used to say to me as a kid, you know, there's good and evil in the world, son, take your side and get on with it. And that was very wise because we have this idea in the Christian tradition um, that, you know, there's a fallen archangel who's a devil and there's a Christ child, the son of God. And that these two forces of light and darkness are going to sometime come together and good's going to vanquish evil and we're going to be enraptured and all will be well. Well, ain't going to happen. The truth is, uh, you know, when, when, when Christians asked the obvious question in the Middle Ages, if God's all-powerful, why does he allow evil to exist in the universe? That was considered heresy, and you're burned at the stake. Now, in a very different religious tradition, the Vedic tradition in India, when Lord Krishna was asked that very question, if God's all-powerful, why does he allow evil in the universe? Lord Krishna paused for a moment and then responded to thicken the plot, because the truth is that good and evil walk hand in hand, and you'll never vanquish evil, but if you take the side of good, you realize that the whole point is to keep trying, keep pushing that wheel of justice forward with no expectations of victory. It's a little bit like the the Buddhist pilgrim, you know, the, the, the pilgrimage is a, a journey to Space, but it's really a passage through the liminal realms of the imagination. The goal is not a, 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 a destination, but a state of mind. Right, and and so if you realize that, in the same sense, all the work you do for things that are good, whether that's protecting a wild area, whether it's doing uh, kindness to the those in need, whatever it is, um, just living a life of as the Dalai Lama says, of loving compassion, acts that, by the way, reverberate through eternity. Uh, when money has lost all of its luster, um, you just you just keep going. And if you don't expect to win, then you're happy when you do, but not disappointed when you don't. And then you're able to keep going. So I've certainly found in, in my personal life that that is how. At the age of seventy, I have the same. Beat spirit, optimism, the same drive, the same excitement, uh, almost the same childlike um, enchantment with the world as I as I had when I first tumbled into a sandbox. It's just that now I play in a much bigger sandbox.
1: Yeah, no, I mean that's such great advice, and uh, I I just feel like there are so many parts of today's podcast that one people are going to identify with, but. Also, you just put it so well and how people can take that advice and apply it to their own lives. And honestly, I'm like, wait, there's, so, there's way more I could ask, um, but I know we have to wrap up. And um, one thing we do love to do to end every episode, it's for our listeners to get to know you better. Um, we have three rapid fire questions. So first thing that comes to mind the first one is, what is your favorite de-stressing practice or
0: support tool? Walking. Love
1: it. Uh, coffee or tea? Tea. What, Actually, what kind of tea?
0: Actually, coca. Okay.
1: Oh, I, really I like York. that.
0: I don't use tea or coffee. Uh, coca is a much more healthy and much more useful um, uh, natural stimulant.
1: Yeah, I love that. Um, your favorite home-cooked meal?
0: Shepherd's pie.
1: Good one. Um, have you ever had, my husband and I made a shepherd's pie. Have you ever had it with celery root instead of mashed potatoes?
0: Yes, I, I have, actually. I just looked that once. It's very good.
1: Did you like, yeah, we, oh, I mm-hmm. I forget how we discovered some recipe with it. And we started making it with that. And we were like, this is delicious. Or just has a whole nother flavor profile. But mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. always left to share that part. Well, we thank you so much. Where can people connect with you? Learn more. Um, tell I us the, all the
0: places. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I'm really a ludite when it comes to social media. I do have an Instagram site. Um, I, um, I have a website, daviswade.com, uh, um, which is a bit out of date. And uh, but mainly through my books. You know, I, I've written 22 books, uh, 23 books actually now, and um, they're in 22 languages, and they're readily available. Uh, at all the basic outlets um the wayfinders is a, is a good one for some of the themes we've spoken about in terms of culture uh one river is is sort of considered a a, a classic for those who engaged the amazon uh into the sil- silence my book on the great war and the uh, attempts to climb mount everest in the 20s won the prize for the top book in english language when it came out so the books are are, are well-received, and and I think people would enjoy them.
1: Yeah, no, that sounds great. Well, Wade, thank you again for your time, um, and good luck.
0: Well, thanks for having me, Kate. God bless you.
1: Thank you for listening to Naturally Well by Nordic Naturals. And remember, you can catch some of our episodes of the podcast on our Naturally Well YouTube channel. For something to do in between episodes, follow me on Instagram at LiveWellWithKate, where I typically live on my stories, providing a variety of daily health and wellness tips. Naturally Wells, hosted by myself, Kate Turner, and produced by Andrew Steven. If you have any questions, please send us an email at podcast at nordicnaturals.com, and we hope to answer your question on air. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.